I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord Jesus has come to this mountain in Galilee, come to this mountain, and very much like Israel in the before Mount Sinai, heard the voice of God speaking from the mount. So Jesus, actually having, we're told in early in the, earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the chapters, been called out of Egypt and come to the, the sea, into the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by the devil and coming now to a mountain. Now from that mountain speaks, not words of command like Israel heard from Mount Sinai, but words of blessing, words that speak of the happiness of those who possess this kind of character that our Lord displays. We have these seven beatitudes, these seven statements of blessing in which we have something of a portrait of what Christianity does, what Christianity looks like, what we ought to expect becoming more and more if we follow Jesus. These are the things that should characterize us as the people of God, and hence we should be supremely blessed, because these are things that in God's grace He has made to be true of us. Now, I've done a job through many weeks of providing many windows into seeing the teaching of the Beatitudes and the way they interconnect with one another. It's not a series of random statements that have no interconnection or interrelation. And in all of the things I've endeavored to say by way of multiple illustrations I've tried to give to you, is that the fourth beatitude is really the centerpiece of it. It's really the central thing to which everything has been leading up to this point and from which the rest of it does flow. And that's the key of doing things in seven. It's a really good way in which often we find um, things taught in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you read in the Proverbs about how six things the Lord hates, uh, yea, seven he really abominates. And it's kind of like you scratch your head and you say, wait a minute, did he forget the seventh one? Why does he say six things? And then he's, oh, 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 the seven, actually. He's pointing to the fact, I'm telling you seven things. Why? Because in the way in which the ancients would teach, when you had an odd number, you always look for the central thing. The central thing is always the thing that usually is talking about the heart. It's usually talking about the most important thing that everything else revolves around. We saw that a couple years ago in the evening service when we studied in Deuteronomy chapter 12.10, I think it was, or 12.10. One or the other, 10.12 or 12.10. It's that statement that says, what does Yahweh require of you? And it gives a statement of five things he requires of you. To fear him, to keep his commandments, to remember all the other ones. Right down in the middle, right in the center. To love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The great commandment is found in the center. And everything else revolves around that. And I think everything does revolve around this fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there's many ways you can conceive of it. That previously we've been dealing with the things that are negative, the things that are positive, the way in which we look at ourselves in the world of sin, and we are poor in spirit and beggarly and needy and, and desperate, desperately in need of all that God provides because we got nothing, could do nothing, and we stand in need of everything. And then we see ourselves as mourning the reality of life in a fallen world, 
and all the sorrow and sadness and distress, and then we're meek in the face of provocation of sinners. You don't need, you're not going to need to be meek in glory, folks. You didn't need to be meek in the Garden of Eden. There were no provocations that's going to make you ill-willed and filled with vengeance. But, but in a world of sin, that exists. And so meekness is that which rids us of ill-will. Even as the rest of it wills, uh, uh, rids us of, 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 of just the self-life. And then it brings us all to the place where we now desire something new. <laughs> the old's not good. The old's just something to be put to death. Now we need life. And we need life that's life indeed, spiritual life. And it's interesting that the metaphors that's used to describe what the blessed hunger and thirst for, is, is that's the metaphor, hungering and thirsting for something. Because you see, hungering and thirsting, you know, I know we use it in a, in a looser way. I can say, I really hunger and thirst for the Yankees to play the Mets in the World Series. Wow, I can taste it. Lots of luck this year, folks. You're not getting there. Neither team's getting there. But are you going to die if you don't see that? Well, of course not. Just go on and, you know, you root forever. Okay, it's the Astros and the Dodgers again for the uh, many times. But you deal with it and you move on. It's not a life and death matter. Not to eat and drink becomes a life and death matter. You can die from malnourishment if you don't have a hunger for food. If you don't have a thirst for drink, you'll become dehydrated. People die from these things. Hungering and thirsting is a matter of life and death physically. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, first things that they had to confront was the reality that this is a hundred, a million and a half people. They need food and they need drink. And the people right away begin to murmur in the wilderness. They began to say to Moses, you brought us out to this wilderness for the purpose of dying. You should have left us in Egypt. We had the flesh pots. We had all the, the wonderful things. Yeah, they forgot their bondage. They forgot their slavery. But yet they got all hankering for Egypt. Because they didn't have anything to eat. They didn't have anything to drink. And you see, when you have that piercing sense of hunger and thirst in a wilderness, and you've been brought to that wilderness by the God who brought the plagues upon the Egyptians and then opened up a sea that you could pass through on dry land, what do you think the logical thing to do if you have that God who brought you there? Say, oh Lord, you brought us here to make us die in the stinking wilderness, of course. Yeah, obviously. No. God's purpose was to lead them into the land these promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so whatever you don't have, you know the God who brought you out to this place, he's not going to abandon you now. So why aren't you looking to him? Why are you complaining to Moses? Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you seeking? Why aren't you pursuing? From the hand of God, the things that you need. Is he not able look at the aftermath after all that complaining and they you know gave Moses a hard time and they really proved their, their character that they were not believers they were hard of heart and stiff of neck as they're later going to show the reality is God sends manna from heaven to feed them daily a daily manifestation of the hand of God providing for the hunger of his people and he made a rock to gush forth Imagine how much water had to gush forth to feed a million and a half, to, 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 to give drink to a million and a half thirsty people. That's a lot of water out of a rack in a wilderness. But you're dealing with Almighty God. You're dealing with the God of creation. You're dealing with the God to whom there is nothing that is too hard. So why aren't you seeking Him? 
And just as that piercing hunger for food is necessary for physical life, there's something that's absolutely required for spiritual life. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is that key thing that is absolutely necessary for spiritual life. We cannot live if we don't eat and drink food and water, drink water and eat, have food to eat. And we do not live spiritually if we are bereft of righteousness. Not to possess righteousness is not to be a Christian. To not to possess righteousness is not to believe the gospel. Not to possess righteousness is not to have Christian character. Christian character comes to hunger and thirst for this very commodity of righteousness. There's an intense desire and longing that becomes a life and death issue. Remember, I guess it was Rachel that said, Give me children or I die. <laughs> right. That's easily done. Of course, Jacob responds, My God, I can't give you children or you die. But I tell you something, we need to cry, Lord, give me righteousness or I die. <laughs> righteousness is absolutely crucial, absolutely central. We need to have that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus said, They're the blessed ones, for they alone shall be satisfied. And Jesus said to the woman at the well, If you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. You're going to thirst again. You can come every day, draw on water, you're going to thirst again. But if you knew the gift of God and who it is you were talking to, he would have, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. And the living water is something he says that's going to be in you, that, that river of water that rises up to eternal life. It's a never-ending supply. Of course, it's not the physical water of the well. It's the spiritual water of blessing and grace and righteousness and joy and peace that is part of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It's essential that we be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that look like? What does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What are the manifestations of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? We have a sense of what it means. Now, how does it get manifested? How do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let me suggest in the first place, it says we seek the one who's the source of it. As we seek the God who is himself, the source and standard for righteousness. It's an interesting thing. He's called in scripture the righteous God. The righteous Lord who loves righteousness. God's the righteous Lord. And everything he touches is righteous. His law is righteous. He calls a righteous people to enter into a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is the righteous God. And Jesus Christ, whom he sends into the world to be the savior of sinners, is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the just and righteous one. And righteousness is ours as we know him, as we seek him. Because that's the only place to find it. You're not going to find righteousness in other things and other places. God alone is the source and standard for righteousness, and we are to hunger and thirst for him. It's a personal pursuit of him. Not just a thing, but the one who gives you the thing. Not just a gift, but the one who is himself the giver. And that's where these psalms come in. We read Psalm 63 that sets this out, but also Psalm 42. And I'm just going to turn your attention there to Psalm 42 and read that in your hearing. Psalm 42. 
again, the picture is, the metaphor is, is the deer pants for flowing streams. You know, when you see them running across the highway and <laughs> jumping across fences, you say, whoa, glad I missed them. Wonder where he's heading. Probably for a stream somewhere. Probably for some place where there's water flowing. Or else it's our backyard where they come for the grass. But then they go for the places where there are flowing streams. As the deer pants for the flowing streams. So, pants, my soul, for you. You, you jump fences for God? <laughs> you <laughs> pursuing God? Now, stay out of traffic. Well, <laughs> but the point is, there's that earnestness of need and desire for God that animates and activates the soul of the psalm writer that we should know something of. I need God. I want God. I thirst for God. For the living God. Why should I come and appear before God? And of course, this appearance before God is the appearance in the place of His appointed worship where He has promised to come. He's made His tabernacle to be the tent of His presence. Isn't that amazing? That God would have a tent for His presence in the midst of Israel. God has a tent of His presence in Jesus because He came to tabernacle among us. God's presence is found in Jesus. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. We meet in the presence of God. We meet in the presence of the Son of the living God. Jesus is in our midst and we know God in and through Him. And we, our souls should thirst for God. You just don't go to church and say, I wonder what the preacher is going to say this morning. Well, I hope you have some interest in that. But that's not the chief thing. But then what is the preacher going to say this morning? As we come in the presence of the God who's promised his presence to be with us. He's, to, he's made the church, we read in Ephesians 2, to be the habitation of God through the Spirit. And we say it's God's house, the pillar and ground of the truth. Why? Because that's where God dwells. He dwells where his people meet. When shall I come and appear before God? This man's in exile. This man is not able to come to the house of God. He says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Where is he? I say, He's in my heart. Oh, yeah, well, I don't see him. You know, where is he? Where's the manifestation of God publicly? Well, it's among the gathering of his saints, it's where his people meet. These I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. That's what he's missing. That's what he's not having. He says, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, I will yet praise him, my salvation and my God. I'll yet be among his people again. I'll yet be in the place where his promised presence is made manifest. That earnestness of desire for God is animating his soul towards God, seeking God, calling upon his name. Even in the place of exile, to know God's nearness, to know God's presence, to once again he's with the gathered throng, where his presence is a reality, not just in terms of his own mind and heart, but God's presence among his body of Jesus, amongst all the people of God who are Holy Spirit-filled Christians. What a glorious reality to be in the presence of people who know God, to, to worship together with one heart and with one voice, singing His praises, drawing near to Him in prayer. 
We need God. We want God. He's the righteous one. And He's the only one who can impart righteousness to us. So it's not just we're after the gift, we're after Him. That's the first and foremost thing. And with Him we get everything else. So Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything else comes from the pursuit of God, seeking Him first and foremost. And as we seek Him as the source and standard for righteousness, you know what we find? He becomes the one whom we find a standing in righteousness. He's not only the source of righteousness, He's the one who gives standing in righteousness through the Gospel's promise. You see, when we begin to think of seeking the one who's the source and standard for righteousness, there's one thing that we ought at first to reckon reckon with. The fact is, he is righteous and I am not. He is righteous, and Scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks God. There's none that understands. They've altogether gone astray. They've altogether become unprofitable. There's none that does good, no, not even one. And that means me and you, all of us, stand in need of a righteousness we do not possess. How do we become righteous in the presence of God? I've got a lot of work to do to get righteous before God. You, know, you can do all the work in the world and you're not going to get righteous before God. You know, the, the Psalm 130 addresses it this way. It says, If you should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand before you? If God was in the business of taking down and noting all of our transgressions, all of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful desires, all of our sinful words, all of the ways that we've not loved Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, all of the ways we've not loved our neighbor as we loved ourselves, if God was putting it all on tape, He says, roll the tape, roll the tape. If He was to mark our iniquities, Write it, write it down. Put every charge before you. You did this on this date and this time, and you did this on this date and this time. Who could stand before Him? We all are guilty. None could stand before our just and righteous and holy God. Well, the good news is, says there's forgiveness with Him that He may be feared. That the great reality is, how is that forgiveness to become ours? And that's the promise of the gospel. Because the gospel tells us the way in which God can be both righteous and yet see you as righteous and me as righteous. That's what Paul calls in Romans. It's the same word, but it's just translated a bit differently. That he's just and the one who justifies those who believe in Jesus. You see, a just judge does not let the criminal go when he's guilty. And God does not let criminals go when they're guilty, but he puts their sins to the charge of one who assumes their liabilities and takes their sins upon himself. It's described for us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 in, in this way, he who knew no sin, the sinless son of God, the righteous one, he made him to be sin. And it's hard to know exactly what that means. Perhaps the sin offering... The fact that he charged sin to his account when it's really belonging to us. God made this transfer of our guilt to Jesus. He made him to be sin, though he knew no sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That his goodness becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His obedience is credited to our account. 
the mystery of love divine. <laughs> that God gave to Jesus the sins, the guilt of, of the sin we deserved and gives us the righteousness that he deserves. Only God could do something like that. And the good news is he does that exact thing in Jesus. That Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 that of him, that is of God, are we in Christ Jesus who by God has made to us wisdom from God, righteousness. Jesus has made our righteousness. In Jesus we find righteousness. Because we find right standing with God. We can't stand before him in our sin and in our guilt. It's only with the forgiveness that he confers upon those that believe the gospel that we find a standing with God in righteousness. We find a merciful God. We find that that righteous God is a forgiving God. That righteousness of God, that righteous God is a God who's made atonement, full atonement for our sins. That's what Paul can say. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and be found in him. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And, and the ESV says, count them as rubbish, but it's a harsher word than that. Count them as excrement. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that my righteousness would simply come from law, and I've already violated the law at times without number, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for that righteousness that only Jesus can bring. That right standing with God that brings forgiveness from our sins, that brings acceptance with God, that brings access to Him, that we might seek Him as His worshipers, we might adore Him, we might have an eternity to look forward to, not away from His presence, but in His presence. But there's even something more. Yes, we're to be seeking the God who is the standard and source of righteousness. We're to be seeking the right standing that comes through the gospel promise, through faith in Jesus Christ. But as Paul uses, I'm sorry, as Jesus uses the term righteousness in, in the gospel of, of Matthew, it has a very full meaning. It's something we do as well as something we receive. It's not just God's gift, but it's something we pursue. He says in verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, scribal righteousness and Pharisaic righteousness basically was external. Jesus is going to talk about a righteousness that's internal. A righteousness that's not just outward but inward, something that grips the heart. He says, you've heard it was said by those of old. And there he's quoting the rabbis. He's not, saying, he's not quoting Moses. He's quoting the rabbis. That's how they, they taught. They taught. Um, the scribes taught with the authority of all the others who taught before them. It was said of the, by Rabbi so-and-so. And it's said by um, this source. <laughs> Jesus says, they said, everything's external. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't do these things internally. But I tell you, it's the one who is angry with his brother. The prohibition against murder touches even the yearning and desire just to be rid of people. 
and it, and it touches the, the unwillingness to be reconciled to people. He says, when you're bringing your gift before the altar, and you know that your brother has something against you, leave the gift, go get right with him. That's paramount. Righteousness means you seek to be at peace with others. Righteousness means you look to be reconciled. That is, you've been forgiven to be forgiving. As God has reconciled you to him, you look to be reconciled to your fellow sinners. See, righteousness touches all of life. It touches the way we seek to emulate Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be like the God who's had mercy and, 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 and forgiveness towards us, to extend that mercy and forgiveness to others. Righteousness is something that we should be seeking, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He even uses righteousness with respect to religious activities. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men or before other people in order to be seen by them. He says, then you have no reward with your Father in heaven. And that righteousness that he says we're to be doing before God is righteousness that consists in giving to the needy. It's righteousness that consists in the way you pray. It's righteousness that consists in the way that you fast. That it's all before God you're to be doing these things. And so, how do you get that? How do you get a spirit of life that wants to live in the presence of God, in the way you pray and give and fast, the way you live your life in God's sight, in God's presence? How do you get to any attainment of good in anything that is Christ-like or God-like or truly righteous as He is righteous? And that's where we need the Spirit, don't we? We need not only the God who is the source and standard and the standing that he gives, but also the spirit of righteousness that could only be achieved by the spirit of life that sets us free from the power of sin. Paul introduces that argument in Romans chapter 8 when he speaks about the spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. And the spirit of life that comes to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says to the end that the righteous requirement of God's law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's end in our salvation is not just to change our destiny, it's to change our hearts and our lives and our, our yearnings and our desires and our our attainments, that we can be pleasing in His sight. In fact, the assumption is we are pleasing in His sight. Isn't that a kick in the head? I mean, think about that. That we really do please God? Yeah. But uh, so many things that don't please God, yeah, that's true too. But there wouldn't be anything in your life that ever pleases God if God wasn't present in your life by the Spirit. And in fact, there's some things that please God that's in your life as an indication. You didn't get that on your own. You didn't get that because you worked that up in some form of spiritual discipline to excel in this, that, or the other. But God has given you His Holy Spirit. And as you walk by the power of the Spirit, you do live to His glory. You do serve Him. You do please Him. God has given us His Spirit to make us righteous. But the fruits of righteousness would be realized in our lives. Paul speaks about that in the Philippian letter. He says, the fruits of righteousness that are through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God would be in us. We are to be a fruit-bearing people. 
We're to be trees of righteousness, the Lord's planting. I believe that's in Jeremiah or Isaiah. One of the prophets speak of that, becoming the trees of righteousness that are God's planting. That we would show forth the fruits of righteousness. Kind of a picture of getting back to the Garden of Eden, where there are trees of life and trees for the healing of the nations, as the new heavens and new earth will bring. So the grace of the gospel comes and makes us to be the trees of God's planting. We will be like trees planted by the rivers of water that bear fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever we do will prosper. And without any without without the pursuit of the God who is the source and standard of righteousness without the standing in righteousness that comes through the promise of the gospel and without the spirit of righteousness who dwells in us to bring forth the fruits of righteousness there's simply no life there's simply no life we are dead in trespasses and sins but the blessing of the gospel is that we are brought to see our need of this very thing a very need for righteousness and we're then made to become those who hunger and who thirst for it. You get up in the morning and say, I'm hungering for some bacon and eggs. I'm hungering for, I don't know, some of you like oatmeal. That's okay. You can have it. <laughs> Whatever it is that you hunger for is part of necessary daily living to be seeking after the things that are going to make you healthy and prolong life. Do we forget the needs of the soul? These in um, Job that he speaks about God's word being more to him than his necessary food. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need to be a people that grapple with the realities of God's word, feeding upon God's word as newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. There's to be this spiritual hunger that characterizes us even down to old age. Even when we start to lose our hunger for physical food, there should still be that hunger for God. That hunger for God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to go into nursing homes and talk to people who are Christians and say, well, don't eat like I used to. Don't even want food. Don't, eat, no, don't bring it near me. I'm just waiting to get to Jesus. I'm just waiting to go to glory. That's what I hunger for. That's what I desire more than anything else. What does that? What produces that? It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And it's a lifetime of understanding what it means to hunger for God, to thirst for God, to stand in a right relationship to God through the power and promise of the gospel and to be daily pursuing the kingdom of God and its righteousness. What do you hunger for? Yeah, I know, you want to see the Subway series, so do I. But I mean, really, what's at the heart of the greatest desires that you have in, the, in life? I know you have aspirations in your business, you have aspirations for your family members, you have aspirations in so many ways, but somewhere mingled in that, is there not this craving for God, this craving for Christ, this desire to be like Him, this pursuit of the things of the Gospel that's absolutely essential and necessary for the maintenance and sustaining a spiritual life. If that's nothing that resonates with you, nothing that is true of you in any way, the reality is you need the new birth. You need the power of a new of, of, of the transformation of God's grace. You need to be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
The glorious thing about the gospel is that's always on offer. God places that on offer. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that spoke to that woman at the well, you'd have asked Him and He would have given you living water. You would have asked Him and He would have given you a hunger for Himself, a hunger for the holy things of God. He would have made you part of those blessed ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, the greatness of this blessing is we never hunger and thirst in vain. We serve a God that gave daily manna from heaven to the Israelites who burst open a rock and it flowed flush forth with water to feed a multitude. And that God that does that is the God who continues to supply the needs of His children in fullness, in fullness. The only thing we hunger for is more of Him. The only thing we could ever desire is to know Him better, to honor Him better, to serve Him better. More righteousness, yes. But it always seems as our hearts desire more, God gives more. As we long for more and pray for more, we're never absent the answers to those prayers. We can never outgive God, as they say. And God is the one who's continually giving good gifts to His children. Everybody's looking for happiness in the world. But sadly, so many look for it in all the wrong places. Jesus makes clear where true happiness is to be found. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the chief thing, thing essential to spiritual life, for they shall be satisfied. May God be pleased to bless His word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light to our pathway. We're thankful that your word testifies of blessing that's given to all who come to faith in Christ. He's been the curse bearer who's taken away the curse our sins deserve. And yet having assumed our curse, he's given fullness of blessing to all who come to God through faith in him. And we're thankful He you have shown us the way of blessing and that your grace imparts to us the blessedness of hunger and thirst for all of the right things, the needful things, the righteousness that we only find in you, the righteousness that your spirit imparts and the gospel gives. Help us to live in the light of that righteousness and to live righteously before you all the days of our lives. Hear our prayers and bless your people, we pray as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.